Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Vampires Never Get Old, a podcast about vampires in literature. We are your hosts. I'm Zoraida Cordova. And I am Natalie C. Parker. Our guest today is Laura Ruby. Um, Laura is a two-time National Book Finalist uh, and a many, like, critically acclaimed author of, of more than 12 novels. Is that correct? I think so. it's like it's a it is a test um most recently uh 13 doorways wolves behind them all we are so thrilled to have laura ruby joining us um both in the anthology and today we are going to discuss two of her vampire picks salem's lot which is an older stephen king novel i think it was published in 1974 and The Coldest Girl in Cold Town by Holly Black, which was published in 2013. So mm-hmm. we've got um, novels separated by a few decades, and we're excited to dive into both of these. So welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk monsters with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> we are always up for some good monster discussion. Um, I think, first of all, we want to know what uh, why these two novels, why Salem's Lot and Coldest Girl, is there a relationship between the two, um, uh, that made them obvious selections for you? Or were they just two novels that you really enjoyed? Like, give us, give us a little window. Okay. So when I was a kid, um, and I don't know if you guys, uh, have ever heard Neil Gaiman's, uh, Newbery Award speech, where he talked about uh, feral children being raised in a library, um, and I was, one, but, I, but I was one of those children. I was a feral child raised by raised in a library. So I spent my youth in a library. And my parents were, they were '80s parents. They were busily getting divorced, you know, on a whim because they were bored. I don't know what they were doing. So I was really free to read whatever I wanted. And so I read lots of stuff that people would consider inappropriate for children. Um, so I read plenty of great stuff for kids, but then I then I found Stephen King really quickly, you know, because my favorite stuff to read was scary stuff. I loved reading about monsters and I loved, re- re- you know, particularly ghosts, but ghosts and witches and whatever. And I found that stuff in the YA section and the kids section. But then I, you know, I just went looking for all the monsters in the adult section. Um, Salem's Lot was one of the books that I found. I mean, the thing is, I was never a big vampire fan. Hmm. You know, I used to watch like monster movies on TV there, you know, there was a thing called Schiller theater, like on Saturday afternoons that I used to watch and they would have mummy movies and ghost movies and all kinds of Frankenstein, whatever. The vampires, I was always like, oh, you know, I don't know. Didn't, didn't move me. And I was, I didn't think they were scary for whatever reason. (laughs) I wasn't, I'm like, why is that scary? It just seems weird. I don't know. You know, I wanted to suck your blood is kind of like, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, but why? That's gross. I don't, I don't know. I didn't, it didn't do much for me as a kid. 
But Salem's Lot, and I don't even know how, how old was I? I can't remember how old I was when I read it. But it scared me to death, right? And so that was the first time I was like, oh, oh, they're scary. They're scary. Okay, they're scary. Now I get it. So his Stephen King's conception of vampires made made more sense to me. Like instead of sexy, they were frightening, terrifying. Now, so that's why I picked like so 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 that was my formative vampire experience, I guess <laughs> if you want to call that. Um, but then you know, coming to coldest girl in Cold Town. Well, first of all, I just love the language. I love Holly Black is just great at world building. I love that she calls it like the vampires just like turning cold. I love that so much. Um, and she's, she's a master at that world building, which I love. Um, and, uh, um, she also ties into the horror of vampires. Now she also does talk about the allure of them, you know, so she's, you know, so, so she doesn't, neglect that aspect of it, the, the, the sensual aspect, the sexual aspect, none of that. But she doesn't shy away from the horror of a turn, the horror of, I don't know, eating your friends maybe, or, you know, um, and the horror of becoming something monstrous, something apart from human. And so that's why I picked that. So instead of like the, the romance, the romantic vampires, which is not my thing. I like scary ones, mm-hmm. you know, I like vengeful ones. I like murderous ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, um, so I just, and you know, I think that both of these books, even though they were published decades and decades apart, I actually Googled right before I was talking <laughs> about this, I Googled to see if Holly Black ever mentioned reading Stephen King or, you know, if she was influenced, I think we're close in age. I don't know how old she is or whatever, but I was wondering if she, she grew up reading, um, his books, because I do think, uh, the structure of the novels are, are very similar to the way that the narration of both mm-hmm. of his books is very similar. And the way she starts with, you know, she starts with an individual character, but then she explodes the world out, um, which I think is really interesting. And Stephen King does that too. Hmm. So, so in terms of, of, I guess, um, narrative structure, uh, Salem's lot is the story of, you know, a stranger moves to town and very slowly starts to piece together that something is wrong in this town as people go missing. Mm -hmm. And it turns out the thing that is wrong in this town is that it has a monster. Mm -hmm. Um, and they have to, I mean, this, the main character has to figure out how they're going to address this mm. problem of the vampire. And um, Coldest Girl is the story of a world that has already, like the entire world is aware of vampires already. And uh, the main character wakes up one morning having been to a sundown party mm-hmm. Um and, you know, they they take all of these precautions against vampires. There's like a garland of garlic across yeah. <laughs> the, the windows. And yeah. and they make sure that all the entries are, are locked up. But something went wrong at this party. So she wakes up and discovers that all of her friends have been gruesomely murdered by vampires. And there's still one in the house. 
Um, and she gets swept up into this mm-hmm. adventure, also ending up in, in Cold Town. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give too much away because it is recent enough that if anybody hasn't read it, uh, yeah. And it's you totally need... worth reading. <laughs> yes. It's, I'm yes. like, excuse we... me, it's been seven years. Please read this book. <laughs> <laughs> there okay, is still time it. for you to correct this this error. Yeah. Um, and, and read this book. This is um, one of my favorite openings of a novel uh, because yeah. it is so jarring and weird, but Holly immediately puts you into the setting with like, I just have that blue hand in my mind the entire time. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a blue, dead blue hand, like, um, peeking out of the bathtub. And so yeah. I, you immediately, in a very, very short, um, short amount of time, you just, you already know where you are. You know what this world looks like. You know what you're supposed to fear. Um, and I think that that's really smart storytelling. I love, I love the opening. Like, mm-hmm. it's a great, it is, it is a great first chapter. Um, and you, you, you use the word that I, I like to use a lot, which is the weirdness. Mm-hmm. This is really super weird. Yeah, because it has the trappings of YA vampire stories, but it takes you somewhere else. And I think mm-hmm. that's what I really love to see when, when we challenge these things. Because, again, this book came out in 2013, so a little bit after that, that vampire surge in young adult literature. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, putting it into conversation with Salem's Lot wasn't something that I naturally would have thought of doing. Um, but once, you know, hearing you talk about it, it makes it, it certainly makes a lot of sense and is interesting to look at um, as the trajectory of the vampire in popular culture, like where we have them in our own meta narrative mm-hmm. um, has gone from a place of discovery to a place of being known like the in coldest girl, the the monsters are in the light and they're not only in the light, they're on camera and they (laughs) are from inside cold town broadcasting reality television essentially. But it really taps into that horror element that you're talking about. Um, I think this is one of the first vampire novels that I've read in a while uh, and certainly in our reread. So Zoraida and I have been revisiting a lot of vampire novels from um, sort of the earlier days of young adult fiction. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few that really does hit on those notes of horror. Yeah. And when I say horror, I don't really mean like jump scares or anything yeah. like that, but it's the horror of n- knowing that the transition is going to separate you from your your familiar mind enough that you might look at your own sister and decide yeah. to eat her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's terrifying. I, I, you know, um, it is terrifying and all through it, you know, Tana, the main character, I mean, she has been marked because she had an early experience with her mother, which is really interesting. Yes. And I don't want to give that away entirely, but, um, you know, so this is something I think that she's kind of been dreading. And, 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 and one thing that I think is really interesting is, you know, the, the, um, is that sort of social media aspect of it that did not exist when Stephen King was writing his vampire <laughs> stories in the early seventies. Right. Um, and so it's the difference between being able to keep a secret, like being able to like, there's an undead guy living in a house over there. Like, that's really weird. And people are disappearing. You could probably keep that a secret. Well, now, you know, with social media, you can't do any of that. And, of course, 
sort of bored people who live forever would take advantage, like they would take advantage of that. <laughs> yeah. They would yeah. have dreams, you know, they would have performances and minions and all of this other stuff. It's just so smart. It is. It's so smart. And it really taps into that element of voyeurism that has been present in mm. vampire fiction. I mean, since forever, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, it makes me think of interview with a vampire in particular, yeah. um, where you have the, the lid blown off the box entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really is in some ways kind of an answer to that. It's certainly in conversation with how do you keep a secret in a world where, there really aren't secrets anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Or especially if you could exploit your secret for money yeah. um, <laughs> or any kind of power. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It just, it really rings true. I also, <laughs> reading it right now was a little bit unsettling because it's such a state of post viral infection and quarantine. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I just, you know what? I didn't even, you know, when I picked it, I wasn't thinking of that. You know, I was just thinking, oh, I like that book. Well, we were hoping someone was going to pick it anyway because it is such a great vampire novel in general. And it touches upon uh, vampirism as a virus, as a disease, as something that we try to contain. Mm -hmm. Um, Are the real monsters the people outside the walls? Uh, which is something that I've always, I love about monster stories, right? Who is the mm. real monster in here? Yeah. Um, and yeah. usually it's regular people, which I think is a fantastic metaphor. And how do we make monstrous girls, which goes back to your story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just glad you picked this. <laughs> um, I, and I also think, too, that something that I, th- um, besides the, the kind of almost eerie uh, comparisons that you can make, like with the, you know, the fact that we're in a pandemic and this book is, is, is sort of set where people are trying to contain things and, and trying to keep from being infected. And then, you know, but you can't always be safe. Um, and that some people turn to this sort of, um, kind of weird nihilism, is it nihilism or nihilism? I always say that wrong. I always say nihilism, but I don't, I don't know. All right. One of those, you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) People just get this kind of like very strange, romantic idea about death and dying. Um, You know, I'm not sure. Is it a despair? Is it a, it is a romanticism? I don't know. And we're, we're seeing it in real time now where some people, I do think, know that the, the, that COVID is dangerous and, and, and it can be deadly and still, you know, wander around without masks or they have parties on purpose, mm-hmm. you know, so you're seeing something like that mm-hmm. in, in coldest girl and cult town. Um, but to your point, um, Zoraida, um, I think that, that becoming a vampire just accentuates what you were as a human. Like, so when you, you see what happens to Aiden, who is uh, the ex-boyfriend of Tana, who is just one of, just one of those guys, you know, <laughs> completely charming. He has floppy hair. I don't know how many times you saw floppy hair all through, like you just had that, you know, and 
you, you, you think he's full of crap, but somehow the charm works on you and you don't want it to, but it does. And he sleeps with everybody and you try to be mature about it, but it's all screwed up. Right. But he's just that and more so as a vampire, you know, like he's, he's just, he's as, he's just more, he's more deadly, obviously, you know, he's willing to eat people, but there's, there's a core of him that's like, that's the same. And then there's, um, uh, one of the twins who calls herself midnight, who is a blogger, you know, and she has kind of like a death wish. Yes. Right. And, you know, she wants to go to whole town and just be famous and no more birthdays, no more birthdays. And she's like super romantic. And you know, you've met this girl too. I'm like, you're like, Oh my God. You know, like, like totally pretentious goth cuckoo bunny girl who's jealous of other girls, you know, doesn't like other girls, you know, wants to be special, you know, um, doesn't quite understand monstrousness, but is attracted to it. Um, and you know, and then you see what she's willing to do, but she was always like that. You know, she sacrifices what she loves most in order to get this sort of fame and notoriety and, you know, and the no birthdays or whatever. So I think Holly used the monstrousness to extent to just to, to say that, you know, you, you're, you maintain who you are, you know, even when you're turned. Like the monster is already there. Yeah. The vampire is a state of being, but the monster kind of has to be there before. Uh, That's what I think. Because, you know, even the, the, the interesting part, like I loved Gavriel because, you know, he is, you know, obviously been alive forever and he's just so weird. (laughs) You know, he speaks, you know, like the things that he says, I'm like, Oh my God, he's, he's bananas. Um, but of course you've been around forever. Like he's, he's been around forever for just centuries portrayed, you know, like, you know, and that's another thing that I really like what, what Holly did is that she, you know, like I said earlier, you know, she starts with this very contemporary character and then moves, you know, moves to hundreds of years in the past, you know, kind of, Right. It's like every other chapter sort of breaks the story away from Tana's, uh, I I believe it's first person narration, but um, I think it's close third. Is it? Okay. Maybe it is. And, and the interstitial chapters um, sort of bounce between essentially every other character that you meet on the page. So you get this Um, you get this very contemporary story married with glimpses into the deep past and then glimpses into the very, very near, near past as well. You Mm. know, maybe, maybe this happened five minutes ago. Um, and it's just very smart use of narrative structure in that way. Um, and I'm actually, you know, um, I mean, I like telling stories from various points of view and I like bouncing around in time. I think I am not as seamless with it as she is, which I, which I, I mean, you know, and you might say that I'm more showy about, about it. She has such control over those shifts, you know, that it doesn't feel like, oh no, we're going into another place right now. You know, it's, it's so smooth, you know, so you can go from, you know, Paris in the 18, whatever, 
hundreds to a blog post that the newly vampiric midnight is making about, you know, how she's like so sad, um, that, you know, <laughs> people had to die to make her like a vampire. Um, you know, you know what I mean? So you, it, like, it's, it's, it, you know, and that it captures not just this, this, the world of, let's say the U S um, with these cold towns in, in different cities, but the world hundreds of years ago and, and how, how vampires kind of managed to hide and now how they kind of can't Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about why, why coldest girl in comparison to Salem's lot. All right. So I love Stephen King. I really do. I, I mean, my memories of reading and rereading his books like over and over and over again when I was maybe 12 and 13, 11, I don't even know. Um, just, I never slept. I, I, I had horrible insomnia as a kid and I used to just tent my blankets over my head and just read with a desk lamp underneath my covers. Um, and I read, you know, and I would, and I was reading the shining and I was reading the stand and I was, whenever that came out, I can't remember. Um, I read it, which was later. Um, but you know, like I just read and reread his short stories. Um, but as much as I love him and learned a lot about, you know, plotting and writing and creating characters from reading these books. Um, I always struggled really hard, even as a very young person with his girls and his women. Mm-hmm. It, I, you know, I knew something was wrong, even as a kid, like you're reading it as a kid and, you're, and I would reread it. Like, mm, I can't under, why? Wait. No, wait, I wanted it to be different. And I couldn't figure out like, why am I upset? Why doesn't this work? Why can't I, what the heck? Um, and I, I can't really compare it to Salem's Lot, but I can tell you that I read and reread the stand over and over again, whenever that came out, like I said, maybe that was later. I don't know, but there's a, a female character in that book who's 19 years old. Um, so it was closest to my age, you know, like the only ca- like character in, in, in the book that was closest to my age, you know, like less than 10 years older than me. Um, and then there's this huge, and that's another book about a pandemic. That's a flu. Right, he imagines a flu taking out everybody. I know it's so crazy. Um, a flu taking out everybody. Um, and there's a a 19 year old girl who's pregnant in in this you know sort of post apocalyptic world where everyone is dead. Um, and this girl goes on a rant about how much she needs a man. Like, thank you, men, building all this stuff. But now, now that you're all gone, I that's what I really need. I really need a man. I got to go find a man. And I'm thinking. No, you need large dogs and you need a tank and you need some weapons and armor and, and other women, you know, like, like, and I just, I mean, and I didn't have the language for this when I read it. Like I, I just knew that it was wrong. And it was only later that I thought like, okay, so this is a man who really knows what scares a lot of people, but he does not know what scares a woman in the world. You know, he does not know that a woman alone in the world would be terrified of men that she met. That's, you know, the conclusion I came to. So Mm -hmm. 
Um, the thing that w- that made the difference for me between these two books, one that was formative as you know for me as a and that I came to as a, an adult is the fact that it's center that Holly's book centers girls. You know, it is Tana who who is struggling with her own humanity um, and um, her sister even Pearl who comes who comes in a little bit later who's a little younger. Um, and then there, that there are other women who are also, you know, occupying different roles and, and doing different things. Um, and I am interested in, in, in women trying to think about their own humanity and their own power, you know, and that she understands that, you know, if she becomes a vampire, that you do get a lot of power, but that she's not sold on it and she right. wrestles with it. Right. Right. I, you know, you know, there are so many, there are so many examples of, of, um, stories where you have the younger female protagonist who, um, finds herself in some sort of proximity to power. Mm -hmm. Either she ends up as like a chosen one or she's turned into a vampire, you know, in some way gets some extra you know, yeah. becomes, becomes interesting to us as a protagonist. Um, and I get very frustrated when the, the authorial choice is to surround that person with boys and men yeah. and, and to deny them any powerful, um, relationships with anybody other than men. Yeah. And, and so reading this one was like, whoa, I, I mean, not only does she maintain connections with important women in her life and in her past, mm-hmm. um, but she forms powerful connections with women uh, as she moves through her experience in Cold Town. Um, and that is just, you know, tremendously important to me. And I feel like I had something else to say. And, you know, it is just <laughs> left my head. Well, for me, reading this book, the last time I, I the last time I reread it was I read it when it first came out, and mm-hmm. then um, two years ago, what, was it two years ago when I was in Scotland? So I went hiking in Scotland, and I loaded up my phone with audiobooks, and I had mm-hmm. not heard the audiobook narration of Coldest Girl in Cold Town, and I so I was like hiking in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland, listening to this book. And it was terrifying. And the only, like, the reason is because I'm by myself in in these, like, moors um, Mm. in the Isle of Harris. And and the, the scariest thing in Scotland, you know, there's no predatory animals. And most of the cities that I went to, like, their last crime was in, like, 1952. Um, <laughs> so the, the worst thing that could happen to me is I could fall down a cliff, right? Um, yeah. And so I'm just creating all of these scenarios with these, like, vampire children and the eeriness of the narration. Mm-hmm. It was, like, I wouldn't say it's the perfect hiking book, but it, it definitely made my experience a lot richer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by that fear. The the narration is really really good. If if anybody wants to download the audiobook, I um, love audiobooks, so I would totally try it. In it was fantastic. I thought the narrator did a really good job with like all the different characters and accents. And I did think of what I was going to say. It's it's not even all that profound, but <laughs> damn it. 
I know. But one of the things I love, love, love about this um, story is that Tana um, maintains her own trajectory through the entire thing. There is no moment at which she ever pushes pause for her relationship with Gabriel. I mean, she always recognizes that she has her own priorities and her own um, moral compass and integrity. I mean, there are things that she must do. um, And it, it creates such a rich tapestry in the end. Um, It's, it's so refreshing. This book is so good. (laughs) I, I, I loved, I loved that too. And I, and I loved that she was not reduced to just like, I'm now the mere love interest or sex object of mysterious wackaloon who's wandering around doing strange things, which, I mean, I found him fascinating, but then he had his own thing to go do. It's a weird take on a, on, on a, a romance and adding a, like a romantic subplot in a YA because yeah. it has one of the best kisses that I have ever read in young adult yeah. books. And it's also like terrifying because she just like bites him. <laughs> Uh, yeah it's it is I agree with you it is one of the best kisses and it happens so early it does and but also it's I love that flip like she bites him it's like ah that's funny you know and and also that that he would of course be in like she would be intriguing just even from the get-go because she did rescue him and you know even that choice is such an interesting one. And so telling, like, it's so illustrative of who she is. And then you realize, like, oh, wait, she takes after, you know, family members who also had to make incredibly different cult choices, you know, but you don't learn what those are, you know, until later. Like, why is she a person who does the hard thing because it's right and has this really firm idea of what is the right thing? Yeah, to me, this book feels like a good lesson in how to withhold information at the right time for those really impactful reveals. And when it comes to vampire novels, for me, in YA, I feel like um, we get the information is is everything so upfront right away that, you know, it's it's girl meets vampire boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, small suburban town, which is the the books that Natalie and I have discussed in the podcast so far, uh, with the exception of uh, of the last vampire um, by Christopher Pike. By Christopher I don't know Pike. if you've ever read that one. I have not read that one. <laughs> it's intense. So you should just listen yeah. to the podcast on it. <laughs> we're not the episode saying on it. you should. <laughs> yeah, we're not saying you should read it. We're just saying you should listen to our episode summarizing it. I will uh, listen to the episode. <laughs> Um, but this is different because not only is the structure different, but her arc is not, okay, I, I find this archetype of a brooding, handsome vampire boy, and that is my endgame, right? Mm-hmm. There are different plot lines that keep us engaged, and it isn't, it isn't a romance, but there are romantic elements. It isn't a mystery, but there's a lot of mysterious, mysterious things that we have to put together, mm-hmm. um, and so it's just, man, this is just a love fest. <laughs> I, I, I mean, well, I mean, I feel it was really skillfully done and I didn't, um, you know, so I came back and in re, rereading it. Like I realized like, oh, wait, this is, this is really skillfully done. 
Um, and it is interesting that she chose to come to vampires, you know, like you said in your intro, you know, or early on in the conversation, um, a little bit later than whatever the, I, I mean, I'm not even sure the wave of well, vampires. Well, I don't know fiction. when, um, the poison eaters, which is, uh, her short story collection where this, where mm-hmm. the coldest girl in yeah. cold town short story originally appeared and mm, okay. then the book came after. So it was okay. the poison eaters short story collection, which was just Holly stories. Um, okay. And and it was all horror like horror fantasy stories. It's it's had a few covers. I have like all three versions of it. I I'm just that was a lunatic. Twenty ten. That was twenty ten. So, so that, and that was at the end of like the vampire the vampire boom. Um, yeah. And I the thing that I hate the most about publishing is treating things so cyclical that when somebody does something out so outside the box that is phenomenal, it almost just gets put to the side. It certainly feels like that happened to coldest girl that this got a little bit buried or, or left, left behind in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, because it is, I mean, it's masterful. Like you said, Laura, it's really, it's really, really, really good. Um, and, uh, I, I'm a little bit sad that it got kind of lost. Um, but that leads me to a question I wanted to ask you two. Okay. Um, flipping the table. I am going to do it. Um, I, I'm curious as, uh, why both of you are interested in vampires. Like what made you decide to, well, we'll both work on this anthology, but you know, did you like, was there a conversation you guys were having about vampires and you know, what were the, I'm asking you a lot of questions now, like what were the first vampire stories that you ever engaged with or, or that sort of haunt you still? I I was very much a tween vampire girl um, okay. since I was like 11, 12, 13. I gravitated toward, um, I, I, as soon as I discovered books about witches and vampires, it was over, mm. right? Because I didn't want to read The House on Mango Street for the 1700th time. I didn't want to read, you know, like those are the books that my teachers gave me because they were like, oh, you're an immigrant. Um, you're not oh. Mexican, but that's fine. Here's this book. And <laughs> I'm like, or Esperanza Rising, right? These are such fantastic books, but I didn't want that. I wanted the handsome vampire boyfriend who like shows up at your window. And even though that's super problematic, but I was a very dreamy kind of girl. Um and I wanted to find that magic. Like I was into, I, I started, I, I decided one day that I was like, I was now a goth at 12, 12 and 13, <laughs> which to my mother, it was awful because she was like, she thought I was a Satanist and, you know, like nice Catholic family. Uh, oh, and I show up weird. with all of my, like, I went to, I went to like a garage sale and bought all these Iron Maiden. I didn't even know who Iron Maiden was. Like what, what the band was, but I was like, okay, now I like rock music. So I just bought all of these. I just, I created an identity for myself because I, 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 I was like in that, that transformation of the teenager, right? It is, mm-hmm. I'm searching for who I am and who I am, um, hasn't changed much since I was a teenager, except now I talk a lot more and I'm very loud, mm-hmm. but as a teenager, <laughs> I was super quiet. So that paranormal 
supernatural silver raven wolf wicca books you know Uh, that was that was just such so important to me in the awakening of of like what would become my life's work as a science fiction author science fiction fantasy writer um and so I, I latched on real hard to the teen vampire novels that came out in the, the, the late 90s and early 2000s, and, um, and also Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So yeah, that was, that was yeah, that Buffy was. was to me so formative, specifically in, in writing humor into, um, into the supernatural. So it's not just like, mm-hmm. oh, Bella, you know, like, I, I'm sorry we keep going back to Twilight to all our listeners who are like, they just keep going back to Twilight. I, I super love Twilight, but you can, you know, poke fun of it as well. <laughs> and we have to. We have to poke fun at Twilight. At yeah. <laughs> so that's mine. I don't know, you know, Natalie. Oh, cool. Well, you what know, you? I, oh. I think I fell in love with horror really young and we've talked a little bit on the podcast about books by like Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein and how these were these little pulpy paperbacks that you could buy two and your friends could buy two and then you could swap them and mm. you got twice the horror for one, you know, just the <laughs> price and, and they were, they were just easy and very quickly consumable. And, uh, my parents, uh, probably didn't actually know what was inside of them. And they definitely didn't want me watching horror films, but I was, you know, having sleepovers and, and watching as many scary movies as I could. Um, so as like a, as a early teenager, I just, there was something in me that was completely fascinated by all horror, not just vampires, but I was drawn to it in this, um, I guess I'm still still pretty yeah, drawn we're still to drawn horror. to it. When <laughs> but, we... <laughs> yeah, but it it, it has always um, had something to offer me, and and uh, in a lot of a lot of different ways that I probably shouldn't reveal on the podcast. But um, <laughs> I also came of age with Buffy Summers. I mean, she mm-hmm. is my age. And so those started coming out and I was with her in high school. I was with her in college. Um, so it's kind of like star Wars in a way where it's hard to remember much of my own personal, like inner monologue or inner narrative without Buffy. Mm. Um, because she was just such a constant presence and that, and, and therefore her mythology was a constant presence for me. So I think that my obsession with vampires, um, probably came through horror in general. And then very specifically through the promise of a girl who, um, had, had equal power to them, but was not one of them. So I, I will never be as metal as Zaretta Cordova. (laughs) (laughs) No iron maiden for you. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I definitely, uh, came to vampires in my, in my teen years, I would say not, not any earlier than that. Yeah. I found this, um, there's a quote, there's a piece of in Holly's book um, that I thought was interesting. Um, and I thought this was, this was kind of cool 
she writes, uh, vampires were fairy tales and magic. They were the wolf in the forest that ran ahead to grandmother's house, the video game big boss who could be hunted without guilt, the monster that tempted you into its bed, the powerful eternal beast one might become, the beautiful dead. And if, after gorging themselves in an orgy of death, they became less lovely, if they became bloated and purple and horrible, then they hit it well. Mm-hmm. So I <laughs> was really kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, what, what, like kind of what, what vampires maybe mean to her is sort of woven into this narrative. So, um, so, but I, but I do want to know what, how you guys came up with this anthology that you wanted to do. So we, we came up with this, this anthology when we were at a writing retreat and mm-hmm. Natalie and I were floating on a pool with Julie Murphy and uh-huh. we were, I think I just said something like, do you know what I miss? Vampires. Mm. And um, we started, we just. As it, it sparked a conversation yeah. because we, it, this was um, several years ago now. And at that time we were still. Yeah, yeah, I think so. We were still very much in a lull, you know, in the cyclical yeah. nature of, of publishing. And when vampires have their resurgences, we were in between times. And um, it was really clear right away that we all wanted to see different kinds of vampires take center stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we wanted to see monstrous girls and we wanted to see um, vampires of color and from different cultures. And we wanted to see the mythologies reflect the real um, incredible diversity of our world instead of just sticking with the same um, archetype over and over and over again. Um, and we, we came up with a list of people that we thought might give us that. And, uh, we basically, we got everyone, to say <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> uh, which is, it feels like a, like we cast some sort of glamor over everyone. Well, yeah. <laughs> we were like, Hey, you want to do this? You're down. It, it, it was very, it, it felt like serendipity, just everything worked. Um, yeah. And we're just so happy that uh, you are able to contribute um, and you're able to write about your monster girls. So I think that if you can tell us a little bit, yeah, tell our listeners uh, what they can expect from your story. Don't give it too much away, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> give, us, give us just a little teaser of bestiary. Okay, so you know, um, because I, I I have more interested in 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 the horror aspects mm-hmm. of yeah, you know, and the, and the way um, yeah, because because there is a bit of body horror when it comes. You do transform physically. Now it's not the same as turning into a bug, let's say, but you know, you you aren't human anymore, and you do want to eat people, um, and. <laughs> That's weird. Um, and, and so, and I guess I was also thinking about, I mean, you cannot create anything without pulling from the environment in which you live. Right. Um, and it was before p- pandemic, but, you know, um, climate change is on my mind. Uh, and, you know, w- the water wars, the fact that, you know, I don't know, the president, I think it was the president of Nestle. Was Nestle. Asked, God, what a t- Yes. So he was he basically like water, not a human right, uh, because he wants to own all the water. I'm like, you want to own all the water? And like, 
Well, and it's, and then I have Fury Road in my head about the water and the green, you know, it's like, there's all these different things kind of come to you. Um, so I, when you asked me to, to write something, I thought, oh, can I, can I, can I do this? You know, can I write a vampire story? Cause it's not something I've tried before. I've not written about vampires. I've written about every other kind of monster, I think, <laughs> but not a vampire. Um, and, and so my kind of vampire was, was, I, I think some what would be one that, um, was, would be struggling with her own, her own transformation against this backdrop of, you know, perhaps a dying world, a thirsty world. You know, I wanted her thirst to sort of mimic the thirst of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically is the story of, of a 17 year old girl who, who, who works in a zoo, a very sad zoo with very thirsty animals, um, that doesn't get many guests anymore. Uh, somebody, the powers that be have sort of turned, have rationed the water because they can, um, because certain people can afford to pay for it and other people can't afford to pay for it. And she's sort of in a weird, weird lull, you know, she, she doesn't want to use her power. She doesn't see how she can use it. So she's just kind of interacting with the animals all the way through. So, so, so the story is about how she um, decides that perhaps there's a way that she can use this monstrousness that she did never asked for. She didn't ask for, she didn't ask for it, um, but it's hers anyway. And so what is she going to do with it? Um, and I wanted to, it to be less romantic and more, um, you know, more internal about, you know, if you, have, I mean, like, and it's kind of like the old Spider-Man thing, like with a lot of power comes a lot of responsibility. Are you right. willing to do what you can do? Mm-hmm. Like if you mm-hmm. could do something, would you do it? You know, or are you just gonna, eh, because it's too hard or just because you, you know, you just don't want to be bothered or whatever. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and I did want to lean into the fact that, that she, she is a monster. She is scary, you know? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times when she looks at people and she chooses to, to look at them, she frightens them. Yeah. That dogs can sense, oh, okay, not safe, not safe. You know, that she does have an allure to other people, but it's creepy. <laughs> it's not that typical, you know, vampire seductress. It's a different kind of it's a different kind of allure, um, which I think is really refreshing. Well, that's what I wanted to do because I I do you know that's I, I wanted to lean into that monstrousness as opposed to like leaning into the like I don't know sexy pants kind of thing. I mean, <laughs> other people do that. That's great. Nothing against sexy pants, but you know. Um, and, uh, so, so that's, um, I, I don't know. It was, it was, it was interesting writing the story. I mean, I, I have to thank you guys for asking me because it really was a challenge for me to do. It's not my, it's not my typical wheelhouse, you know? Um, even though, you know, in, in, in doing, even just like thinking about this podcast, I'm like, Oh wait, I have a touchstone yes. to this. Yeah. You know, that I 
haven't thought about in years, you know, besides Dracula, I mean, I've read Dracula, but I have like a touchstone that was really a book that was important to me when I was a kid. Um, So of course it's going to be in my head. Awesome. Well, we are super fans of Bestiary. We cannot wait to share this with all of you listeners. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us. We can't wait for everybody to read Bestiary. Um, Thank you for listening this week. Review, subscribe, and make sure you pre-order Vampires Never Get Old. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 